In your Bibles, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. And today we come to uh, part number two of a sermon that I began three weeks ago, right before Mother's Day. That's quite a long time between two parts of a sermon, but I sure didn't want to talk about hypocrites on Mother's Day. Didn't think that would be too appropriate. And then last week we had a guest speaker, our missionary to Mexico, Brother Dan Morris. And so that makes a long divider between two parts of this sermon. But we're looking at a portion of Scripture that some have called the life verse of every unbeliever. I'm sure you've heard of life verses. There are pastors and many Christians that choose a verse out of, a Bible, out of the Bible, and they call that their life verse. And whether by choice, choice or default, Matthew 7 verse 1 is a favorite verse of unbelievers. And all of you know this verse well. Judge not that ye be not judged. And it makes sense that unbelievers would love this verse because they don't want anyone, especially uh, Christian people, telling them about their lifestyles and trying to correct them. A few weeks ago, I was listening to an interview with a well-known celebrity, and he made this comment. He said, I believe in gay marriage. I believe people ought to be able to do anything they want to do, and we don't need those hypocritical right-wing Christians telling people it is wrong. And then he said, judge not, lest you be judged. And I thought that that was just an odd comment because he just judged right-wing Christians to be hypocritical. Well, this is the way most people are when they use this. They don't want to be judged, but they don't mind judging other people. And it really points out the gross misunderstanding of what Jesus is really talking about in this part of Scripture. So we're going to look at this again today. If you'd stand with me, please. Look in Matthew chapter 7. We'll start at verse number 1 and read down to verse number 6. Matthew 7, verse number 1. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for those who've come today. We pray, Lord, you'd open up this before us. Help us to understand what you'd have us to know. And Lord, we do want to be... Uh, people that use the right kind of judgments, know when to judge, and uh, certainly to have our lives in such a shape that we can speak to others about their sin and know that we're not condemning ourselves in the same process. Lord, help us today as we look into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let me start out today by catching you up a little bit on where we are. There are three weeks of separation from the first part of this sermon to this part. So I think we do need to review just a little bit before we get into the second part. This particular scripture comes at a very apropos time in the course of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been correcting the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. These were the religious leaders who had perverted God's laws, and they had imposed a system of rules and regulations by which they thought that they could be made fit for the kingdom of God. In chapters 5 and 6, Jesus deals with theological and practical questions. 
that show that the religious leaders had really missed the intent of God's law. And that is to show that we're sinners. The only way that we can be right with God is for God to cleanse our hearts by faith. And then God must give us his own righteousness. And that's what stands good for our salvation. God's standard is perfection and we are imperfect. And so there's nothing that we can ever do to actually be righteous in the eyes of God. God must do all for us. Now Jesus said that these scribes and Pharisees were really good at keeping all of the nitpicky points of the law, but the parts of them that were greater, the ones that had the most impact on lives, such as justice and mercy and faith, he said they didn't have any of this. And that's always the way it is with people who think that they're superior to others. They love to judge and condemn. They care little at all for the feelings of others. They have no mercy. And so they just love to pick out faults of other people and just in order to make themselves look good. And this is the background of why Jesus brings this up at this point in the sermon. The point can't be more demonstrated clearly or demonstrated more clearly than when Jesus talked about that hated tax collector and the self-righteous Pharisee. Both of them prayed and they had very different manners of praying. We've read this before, but I think it's very good for us to read it again. From Luke chapter 18, Jesus says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, that's the tax collector, standing afar off, would not lift up so much his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And that's pretty much the attitude in a nutshell. The Pharisee was proud and judgmental. But the tax collector is the one who recognized his sinfulness, and so he cried out to God for mercy. But that doesn't tell us the whole story of what Jesus is teaching here. Some would love to end it right here at verse number 1, and they say, okay, what God is telling us then is we're not to judge anything. Let's just keep to ourselves. Let's go with the flow. Live and let live. Anybody can do what they want to do. Don't talk about sin. We don't have the right to make any judgments at all. Well, we don't want to exclude verse number 6 because it shows us that this is not all that Jesus had in mind. Verse 6 is actually a statement about judgment. Some are called dogs and swine. And Jesus tells us that we're to have nothing to do with them. And so if we're going to follow Jesus' directions, we have to make judgments about who those people are. So in the first part of the message, I pointed out what kinds of judgments we are supposed to make. The God does make allowances for certain kinds, and we talked about them under the heading of proper judgments. What kind of judgments are we to make? Well, I can't preach all of that again, but just to hit the highlights, we are commanded to make judgments in three areas. We're to judge for deportment, judge for discipline, and we're to judge for doctrine. We judge for deportment, Because we want to make sure that we don't hang out with the wrong kind of people. We want to make sure that they have the right kinds of lifestyles. And we don't want an evil lifestyle to be an influence upon us. So we we watch out for that. We also have to judge for, as a church, we have to judge for discipline. 
Now, when we're judging for deportment, the Bible says that light can't have fellowship with darkness. It says we have to separate from them. We're not to, uh, to follow after unfruitful works of darkness. But then the Bible talks about judging for discipline. And as a church, we don't want open sin to be in the church. When a Christian becomes involved in a sin that hurts the entire body of the church, then the Bible says we're to judge that person and we are to correct the offender. We always do that in love. We don't do it to sit in judgment over people because we think that we're better than they are because we realize that we're all sinners that have been saved by grace and we want to make proper judgments according to the standards of God's Word. And then also we're to judge for doctrine. Doctrine is a very serious matter. Uh, Wrong doctrines can lead people astray. Uh, They keep people from believing the truth about salvation. In the fifth chapter, Jesus was speaking about theology and he was telling people, you need to beware of those false doctrines of the Pharisees. And he hits the subject again a little bit later on here in chapter 6. So we have to be discerning and to make these kinds of proper judgments. So the scripture says we must make proper judgments and sound reasoning. I mean, just think about it. Sound reasoning tells us there are judgments to be made. And we can't just say, well, nobody can make judgments of any kind. So the first part of the message was a description of what Jesus didn't mean by this statement. Judge not that ye be not judged. So now we move on to the heart of the matter. And as usual with the Sermon on the Mount, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And so there is a way to make proper judgments, but now we want to talk about our personal judgments. How does Jesus say we are to govern personal judgments? Well, let's read the text again, starting at verse number 1. Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, And then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. I think the best way for us to get started here today is with a a great illustration that we have of this from the Old Testament. I'd like you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And this is the encounter between Nathan the prophet and King David. If you remember, David committed a multitude of terrible sins in the matter of Uriah and his wife Bathsheba. Uriah was one of David's faithful fighting men. He was married to a very beautiful woman named Bathsheba. And one day while Uriah was away fighting in the battle, David was at home and he was taking a walk on the rooftop of his house. In those days, the rooftops were flat and often people would go up there to kind of stroll around. Uh, It was a place that they could go to sit in the cool of the evening. So David was walking on his roof and he was looking out across the way and he spotted this beautiful woman that was taking a bath. That woman was Uriah's wife Bathsheba. Now my purpose today is not to expound all those details and for us to wonder why, what was she doing on the roof taking a bath? I'm not going to get into that. But David saw her And he lusted after her. And so he called for her to be brought to him. And so David ended up committing adultery with her. And the result was that Bathsheba became pregnant. And so in order to cover up the affair, David recalled Uriah from the battle. And he insisted that David should go in to be with his wife. 
And then after he had been with her, no one would be the wiser. They would think that this baby that was conceived was Uriah's. Well, the only problem was Uriah didn't go along with David's plan. In fact, Uriah was a very honorable man. And while his comrades were fighting in the battle, he was not going to enjoy himself by going in to see his wife. And so David saw that he couldn't solve the problem this way, so he had to do it in another way. And what he did was to have Uriah killed, and then David married the widow. And you can read all about that in chapter 11. It's a fascinating, but it's a very sad tale. But I want us to look at chapter 12, because David thought this whole matter was covered up. Uriah's dead, he has Bathsheba, he's married to her, and they're going to have the baby. But the only problem is that God knows all and God sees all. And David was caught by the one that mattered the most. So if you'll look in 2 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was coming to him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die." And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore... The sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son." Now, there is a lot to be said about this on several different subjects. But let's see if we can take this and relate it to Matthew 7. First of all is the moat of criticism. Now, here is a case where David was very quick to rush into judgment when he was guilty of a like sin for which he condemned another man. And actually, David was guilty in a much greater way. The story that Nathan told him was about a poor man that had a little lamb that he had raised as a pet for him and his children. This little lamb was precious to the man. He took care of it. Took care of it in the same way they would even one of his own children. Uh, took care of it in the way that many of you do with your dogs and your cats. Only in those days, dogs and cats weren't pets. And it really doesn't work very well with the story anyway when it comes to the part about eating the pet. 
But there was a rich man who had many livestock, and he had many lambs. He had great herds. He had a lot from his flock that he could choose from. And I think we could gather from the story that he had no special care for any of the animals that were in his flock, certainly not ones that he treated the way that the poor man did. But there was a man who came to visit him, a traveler who came. And in those days, it was a custom, of course, to feed people when they came. And so this rich man went to the poor man, and he took this lamb that he loved. Instead of going to his own flocks, he took the poor man's lamb, and he killed it, and he served it as a meal to this traveler. Now, when David heard the story, he was incensed. He believed all of this was real. And he said, well, I'm going to take that man's life for doing such a thing. David was willing to punish this man for the life of a lamb. Nathan knew exactly how David would react. I mean, that was the whole point of telling the story. And he said, David, you're the man. You're the guy who did this. God has blessed you. You have everything that you could desire. You could have had any woman that you desired. But you took the poor man's wife. You spoiled her, and you went even beyond that. You took the man's life also. And he said, what you tried to keep secret is going to be declared in all the land of Israel because God is going to punish you, and he'll never let bloodshed depart from your house. And that came true. David's family was a mess, and this sin plagued him all the rest of his life. So how does that apply to Matthew 7? Jesus said that the judgments that you judge others by will be the same criteria by which you'll be judged. Then he spoke about the moat and the beam. What is a moat? Well, it's not a water around a castle. That's an M-O-A-T. This is moat, M-O-T-E. And what it means is like a little speck of sawdust. It means like just a little sliver of wood. The beam would be like these huge beams that we have running across the top of our auditorium. To David, the moat was the life of a lamb, and the beam is the life of a man. With David, the moat is the sin of a man that killed a lamb, and the beam was his own sin in killing or taking that man's wife and then having the man murdered. Now, you see the point that's being made? How are you going to look at all the little faults of others when your faults are so glaring that you can't even see straight to see the other guy's faults anyway? If you criticize others without first acknowledging your sin and getting rid of the sin, you are a critical hypocrite. And so Jesus says, how are you going to say to your brother, let me get that speck out of your eye, when the whole time that you're telling him that, your sin is worse than his? Then he says in verse 5, thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. Now we see there's something developing here. And what's developing in the story, or as Jesus is teaching, it's the manner of criticism. He said, judge not that you be not judged. And now that's been transformed from flippant criticism, from unholy criticism and self-righteous criticism that we had in part number one. All of that's now being transformed into proper judgment. And so Jesus is saying, no, you can't judge in any sense. He says, it's okay for you to judge, but first, you have to take care of your sins. You have to be right with God. And then you'll be able to see to talk to your brother about his faults. Now you're thinking probably now, well, woohoo! Now I can go to that guy and I can say anything I want to say. But you really understand what this means? True, honest, personal, 
examination, very careful examination, is going to keep your mouth shut probably 80 to 90% of the time. For many people, it keeps their mouth shut 100% of the time. But there is a scenario for the other 10 to 20%. And that's judgment can be made when careful self-examination has already been made. And when that's been made, it alters the approach that you have with other people. The manner of it changes. Paul addresses this in Galatians 6, the passage we read uh, earlier today. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, do you see the manner? This is when you have been personally humbled. And when you examine your life carefully, you will be humbled because then you'll see how great a sinner that you really are. I mean, you can't measure yourself by God's holiness without being humbled by it. And that's the standard, isn't it? God's holiness is the standard. You aren't comparing yourself to the guy that sinned. And you're not saying, well, well, I'm qualified to judge you because my sins are not as great as your sins. He's not the standard. You're not judging yourself by him. God is the standard. And I don't understand why Christians really don't see this. Because if the standard is the other guy's sin, and you're trying to make a comparison between yourself and him, then you're nothing better than a Pharisee. It is exactly what they did. They had their own standards, their own rules. They didn't use God's holiness as the standard. They were comparing everybody to them. And nobody's the standard but God. And this is why Jesus said in the end of chapter 5, he said, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Isn't that humbling? I mean, wouldn't that cause you to tread lightly and to entreat others properly? You know, I'm not saying that you have to be perfect before you can ever say anything, because if that was true, then all sin would go unchecked. But I'm saying that you go to others recognizing that you also are a sinner same thing that Paul said, and that your righteousness is Christ's righteousness. And the only reason that you could ever approach anyone to talk about their sins is because God has graciously covered yours. It changes the manner of the approach, and when the approach is right, I promise you it makes the job easier. When you go to someone and you have love in your heart and your demeanor is not to be critical because you think, well, I have the right to judge. I'm a Christian and I go to this church and I have a right to judge people. If you go in the right way, other people will receive the instruction as it was intended. And the Bible says if they don't, if you've done everything to make this right and your life is like it's supposed to be and you've gone in the right spirit and you speak to a person and they don't accept it, then it says that you're to withdraw from that person. You're to consider they're not a Christian if they don't receive the correction as they should. Now, let me show you another scripture that will mark your manner in a different way. This one was actually written for pastors and teachers, but the principle applies to anyone who pretends that they would instruct someone concerning how they ought to live. The Apostle James wrote this in James 3, verse 1. He said, "'My brethren, be not many masters.'" knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Now, condemnation in that verse means judgment. It's the very same thought that Jesus expresses in Matthew 7, 2. The judgment that you pass on others is going to be used to judge you. And James is telling his readers that if you pretend to instruct others, then you need to be ready for even greater judgment. Here he's not talking about quid pro quo. 
He says here that judgment is weighted heavier against you than it is against the person that you're judging. Do you think that would change your attitude a little? These are things that ought to sober us up and make us see that we're not, not only not to have that beam in our own eye, but we need to be careful that we don't even have the sawdust or the moat there either. Now that leads me then to the last observation today, and it's the motive of criticism. What is your purpose? Why are you doing it? Now if you're totally honest about this, your, your motive, it's going to tell the difference between criticism that is sanctified and that which is sinful. And let me caution you about this, that when you're ready to make a move, motive is the key. And if righteousness is your real motive, it turns out that you're going to be harder on yourself than you are on other people. Now there's some, nothing here, and I think I should point this out, there's nothing here that warrants the attitude that any individual is a policeman for the church. It's not your job to walk into the church with a pad and pencil and to fill out incident reports for infractions. We're not Pharisees. At least we're not supposed to be. And rules-oriented ministries, often that's exactly what happens. There are members of the church that have set themselves up to be the judge for everybody. And so when someone comes in and they're dressed a little bit differently, when their haircut is not just right and the dress is not up to code, then they go into their Pharisee mode And with that critical eye, they turn up their noses at that person and they start to spew their venom. I don't know how many of you were here on the night that I became pastor of the church. But I remember the sermon that I preached on that night. And the title of the message was Fundamentally Flawed. And you may not have realized it at the time, but that message was a shot across the bow showing you the philosophy of my ministry. I knew where this church had been. I knew the angle of approach that had been taken here for many years. And I want to read to you. I'm going back to this sermon almost eight years ago. And I want to read this to you, a comment that I made in the sermon. This is going to be our little trip down memory lane here, a nostalgic trip. Only I don't want you to get a tear in your eye for the way that things used to be. But here's what I said in that sermon. I said, watch out now, because this one may step on some toes around here. Do you know Berean Baptist Church has a police force? We don't have the CHP. We have the HTTHP. That's the holier-than-thou hallway patrol. You better be on your guard because the hallway patrol is watching you to see if you're violating the rules. The hallway patrol hates evil, and that's a good thing. The only problem is they hate everybody else's evil. They've got a standard of law that they live to, and heaven help you if you don't meet that standard. Their mean-spiritedness is not something that's against their rules, but a cross-eyed look on your part will land you in the pastor's complaint department. Watch out for them, because they're not going to let love for Jesus stand in the way of steamrolling you with their 35-pound King James Bible. Now, am I speaking about that as an outsider looking in? Certainly not. I mean, I live this way. I grew up this way. I can tell you what it's like. And I know that this very thing is the place where many Christians hit their stride. They cannot live without a rule for everything. And if they don't have it, they freak out. And so they go and they seek ministries that have pastors that not only have a rule for everything, but they rule everything. You know, I feel like a prophet this morning because we're nearly eight years later and we're here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount and we've still got little pockets of these things going on in the church. And I wonder, what's the motive for these people? 
Don't ever turn your nose up at a young person or a person who comes into the church. Um, If your reaction is uppity when you see something that you don't like and you have disgust in your actions or it shows up in the sound of your voice, you are a Pharisee. So what am I saying? Do the young people sometimes dress the wrong way? Yes, they do. And I'll be the first one to tell you there needs to be some improvement. Are there adults that need to make changes? Yes, there are. And that's why I'm telling you about it right now. But have you considered the motive behind what you say and what you think? What's the motive behind your reaction to things that you don't like in the church? Is it one like this? Well, they better get with the program. They need to look like me. I've got my cookie cutter, and I want to make everybody sit into the same, fit into the same mold that I have. They have to have the accepted hairstyle. They have to have the right dress length. They have to have the Christian look. And if they don't like it, let them get out of here. Let them go find some other church to go to. That's Phariseeism. It's a judgmental attitude that Jesus is speaking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Now think about it for a minute. Were there any sinners in the crowd that day? Were there people that were prostitutes and thieves that were listening to Jesus preach? Do you think there were any people out there living on the edge of society? How did Jesus handle those people? He said, get out of here. Go find some other teacher that will put up with you. That's not it. That's not what he did. The point is here that Jesus kept them there for instruction. He changed the people by changing their hearts. Now listen, the Pharisees had already tried to do it with rules. That's what the whole thing is about. They'd already tried the rules to change people. But rules don't change people. And it's not going to work here. It didn't work there. It doesn't work here. Now some of you say, well, now wait just a minute. You can't argue about this. You can't argue with success. Look at the Christian college. They've got it together. Their young people are all clean cut and they look nice. And it's the rules that make them dress that way. And you know you're right. You're absolutely right. It does. I don't have a problem at all for rules in a Christian college. I think it's appropriate. They have every right to make every rule they want to make, and they accept people who can conform to the rules, and the others that can't, can't go there. And so if you can't conform to the rules, don't go. They have the right to do that. But I don't think it's the place for the church. It produces judgmental Christians. Now, I think what we have to do, we have to stick with this long enough to see people's hearts changed. Let's keep working on people with the gospel and let's give them love and compassion and let's show them a real desire that they give full surrender to Christ. And it doesn't make any difference how good that we think we are. There's not a single person in the room today that couldn't use a little extra in surrendering all to Christ. We're all guilty of this. So the motive for a Christian with criticism ought to be restoration to full fellowship with God. And the idea that Paul gives us in chapter 6 that other people's sins and our sins are actually a burden for us all. We all have to bear the burden of sin. And so when we're collectively burdened, we share the weight. And so we forbear and we nurture others with the love of Christ until we all come to the place where we need to be. Now, here's what he's saying. If you're going to handle another person's sin, you have to do it with carefulness. You have to do it with all the carefulness that you would take care of your own eye. You ever get something in your eye? What do you do to get rid of it? Well, you take both hands and you take a sand, piece of sandpaper and you scrub it until you get, the, get the, the, the bump off of it or something. You don't do that. No, you're very careful with your eyes. 
very easy on your eyes. You, 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 you don't just tear it all up trying to fix things. So if you're going to remove a speck from your brother's eye, you have to do it with carefulness and with sensitivity. And you have to know that you're going to stand in judgment one day before God, and the same judgment that you passed on other people, God says, I'm going to judge you by. Now that's what Jesus is teaching. If you're going to criticize others, make sure that you judge yourself first. Make sure that you first remove the beam that's in your eye, And when you do, when it's gone, when your sins have been confessed to God and you're what God wants you to be, it'll change the angle of approach because you won't be attacking people for sin. You'll come to them with a true desire to help that person who's being judged. Judge not that you be not judged. Make sure that you understand this. Proper judgments can be made. Jesus is not ruling out any kind of a judgment. But he is saying, if you're going to do it, you better approach it with a heart of humility. It better be one with careful self-examination. You approach people with love and compassion and concern. And the only approach to them works when your motive is genuine. And that's when you're there to help them and not to harm them. That's the way that Jesus wants to approach the matter of judgment. You can do it, but you better tread lightly. You better be careful. Because God's watching you even more than he's watching them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we're able to look into your word today. And Lord, we pray that we might not have such a critical spirit that we accuse others, that we look for faults in others, and then we think that we don't have any ourselves. Lord, help us to remove the sin that's in our own lives, to confess those sins. And then may we come together as a body of Christ that wants to help one another so that when we see another person who's taken in a fault, that they have some sin in their life, that we're qualified, that we can come to them and with gentleness and with correction, we can restore them to the fellowship of God. We have to recognize that we're all sinners in need of your grace. Lord, we're, we haven't made it. Um, The only righteousness that we have is the righteousness that you give. And help us to understand we must be covered and bathed in that righteousness before we ever speak to another person about sin. Encourage our hearts today, Lord. We pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would understand that the very clear teaching of your word is that none of us is perfect. This is the whole point of the passage. We're not perfect. We can't do things in order to get to heaven. It never works. We must have the righteousness of Christ through faith. Help people to understand this today. And then for your people, members of the church, and those who would even contemplate becoming members here, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts and help them to understand that we want to be a people that not condemning them for their sins. Uh, The Word of God says they're already condemned. Let, Let us show how to restore people. Let us show people faith in Christ and how Christians can be made closer to you. Bless in this time that we sing, Lord, I surrender all. May that be the cry of our hearts. I surrender all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.